Today we're in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 1. I want to tell you ahead of time that we're going to spend a good bit of time setting the context of this text uh, because here we do expository preaching and we don't want to just take a, a small verse and make an observation about it without placing it in its proper context. And so uh, I'm going to get around to what I've entitled a father's job description about halfway into the message where I make an observations on the word of the father at Jesus' baptism and then make some applications for the men. But the first half of the message is going to be working through the gospel of Matthew to see how we got to this text and to see how the pronouncement from heaven plays in Matthew's greater purpose of showing that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's a king like no other king. And so today, we'll read Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 11. If you're willing and able, please stand as we read God's word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's on. It's on. Let's pray together. Father, as we study your word, I pray that it might reveal to us new and fresh how Jesus is a king like in no other king. And I pray, Lord, that we'll get caught up in the glory of what you've done for us. And Father, I also ask your special blessing as we apply the text that fathers and father figures may take on the challenge that is given. We want to be more like you, Father. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us the courage to take on the challenge. And Father, I also want to pray for those who did not have a positive role model in their life as a father. Especially for those, Lord, who had a negative experience or a completely absent father. Oh, how we need your grace and your mercy today, Lord. And I pray that it will flow freely. And I pray, Lord, today that this will not only be a house of prayer, but a house of restoration, of forgiveness and of new beginnings. Lord, we're approaching your word and your people today with great expectations. 
so great that it's beyond our human capabilities. I'm so grateful that your spirit is here already working and ministering among us. And we are dependent upon the work of your spirit to do the work that you've destined to be done today in the life of your people as they have gathered. And today, Lord, it's with faith that we open up and hear from your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Writing to the Jewish people, Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy. And he divides the genealogies into three different groups of 14. The first group went from Abraham to King David. And the stopping point and the starting point is important. From Abraham to King David. Then he went from King David to the Babylonian exile. And then he went from the exile until Jesus. Now modern readers, when we read genealogies, it's so easy for us to read and say, okay, now get to the good stuff. Uh, Get me to something that can help me with my life today. I've opened up your word for guidance. And so we kind of contend to skim through these names, especially since some of them I don't know how to pronounce very well. And yet, Matthew strategically opens his gospel with these genealogies. And in the indirect culture that he was writing to, remember his audience were the Jewish people. He was making a bold claim with these genealogies. You see, with the first set ending with David and the last set ending with Jesus, he is making the claim that Jesus, as the Son of God, is inheriting all of the ancestral land and the kingdom that once belonged to David. The promise of Abraham, Matthew is telling us, is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham had many sons, but only one of those sons would redeem us from our sin. And so he tells the story all the way from Abraham into eternity with Jesus Christ. So that's the first of three proofs that he's giving in the opening chapters of Matthew that Jesus is a king unlike any other king. The next set of proofs comes with him listing off five uh, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So he begins with the genealogy. And now he moves to the prophecies. And there are five fulfillment citations that Matthew gives us next. The first of these was that Jesus would be born of a virgin. You see that in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 and 23. And it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. The second is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Happened in Matthew 2, 1 prophesied in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And then he tells how the wise men came from the east and traveled to give the newborn child some gifts and to show him some proper respect. A sign in the sky 
a very bright star guided them into that region. And yet they needed, after they got in the region, they needed specific instructions to go to the location. And so they stopped and asked King Herod, where is he? Now, this was not good news to Herod, a very brutal and likely insecure man. Because of this news, just because he was asked for directions. Now, I know that men don't like to ask for directions, but being asked to give directions shouldn't set you off like this. It must have been the insecurity. He ordered the massacre of all children, all boys, two years old and younger. You read about that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. And as a result of this, Jesus' family flees to Egypt. And this is the impetus for the next two fulfilled prophecies. One is that Jesus would come out of Egypt. You read in Matthew 2, 15 and Hosea 11 and 1. And the other is that his birth would be in the atmosphere of mourning children. You read about that in Matthew 2, 17 through 18, prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 15. And then the final one is that he would be called a Nazarite. You read about that in Matthew 2, 23, prophesied in Isaiah 11 and 1 and Judges 13 and 5. And so with the genealogy, Matthew is saying to his Jewish audience, Jesus has claim on all the ancestral holdings that belonged to David all the way back to those that belonged to Abraham. He is God's choice for king among you. But with the visit of the wise men, we see that he is a king unlike any other king inasmuch as his reign is not contained by that land. His dominion is not hemmed in by borders that can be defined. So though he has inherited all of that, there is much more to Jesus' reign than can be contained or described by the kings. And so these wise men, perhaps kings, Speaking to King Herod, certainly a king would be thinking in terms of a territorial reign. And that made King Herod insecure. And so because of that, he, ex he ordered an extermination of young Jewish boys. So that in the mix, out of the many that would die, he would kill the one that he wanted dead who he thought was a threat to his throne. This theme continues through the book of Matthew, and we see that there was misunderstanding by, the, by his own disciples and by others the kind of kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish. By the way, he wasn't establishing a kingdom. The kingdom was already established. He was coming to announce the establishment of his kingdom. But it was a kingdom that had no geographical nor time constraints. It was greater than the king, kingdom that he inherited, that he had the rightful claim to, and it was greater than can be contained by any borders. 
That's the second case that Matthew makes for Jesus being a king unlike any other king. The third one is the context of our passage of Scripture today. When a voice from heaven spoke, do you know how long it had been since the people of God had heard a word from God? It had been a long, long time. But now, a voice from heaven comes that says, this is my beloved son. Now, Matthew introduces us to John the Baptist at this point. We don't know the background material about John the Baptist from Matthew's writing. We don't know about the family connection like Luke lets us in on. Uh, We don't know uh, some of the stranger things about him. What we know about him is that he preached a message of repentance and baptism. And that people were responding to his message. And that Jesus sought him out and asked him to baptize him. Well, John's message was repentance, repent and be baptized. What did Jesus have to repent from? So John says, I can't baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. So John the prophet recognizes the purity of Jesus and the sinless nature of Jesus. Now, lest any reader say, okay, but he he lived a protected life. Look what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. Where he sent with the Father's blessing, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he alone would face Satan himself for 40 days, who would tempt him to entice him towards sin. But at this point, Jesus is asking to be baptized. John says, I'm not worthy. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus' response said, let it be so now. For this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now John was right. Jesus didn't need any sins washed away, but by the way, by the time we get baptized, we don't either. Because it's the blood of Jesus that washes our sin away. It's not the water. That is not a symbolism of our cleansing. What is baptism a symbolism of? What does it symbolize? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. So Jesus is about to begin his public ministry in the gospel of Matthew by being tempted of Satan. And he says, I need to be baptized, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, this is the third time that Matthew is telling us that he's a king, but he's a king like no other king. Jesus 
was born so he could die. And he died so he could resurrect. With baptism, we are buried with Christ in baptism. Romans 6, 4 says. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Whenever we get baptized, we're saying, I'm with him. We're saying, I've died to my own self. And I'm raised now a new person with the Spirit of God living in me. We're not claiming to be pure. We're not claiming to be pure, perfect or just. We are simply acknowledging that we have sinned, but that old man is dead. And just as Christ rose from the dead, there's a new, per, new occupant living here. For Jesus, it wasn't looking back on what had happened. It was looking forward to what was about to happen. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' baptism is prophetic. And he was baptized by the last of the great prophets, John the Baptist. Not because of something that needed to be done in his life, but because of something that needed to be done in ours. What I want you to see is his fleeing into Egypt as a child to escape the death of Herod, the premature death was not so that he could live. It was so we could live. Because by the third chapter, he's acknowledging his destiny. His destiny was acknowledged when he went down into the water. And the water covered his face. Our destiny was sealed when he came up out of the water. Because that grave would not keep him. And because of that, we have the potential for victory in our own life. Not again, not because of our purity or goodness. But because of what Christ has done for us. Now Matthew does not report for us the details of Jesus' baptism like some others do. He just says, and he baptized him. He spilled all of his ink on what happened next. You see, it wasn't the baptism itself that Matthew is highlighting. It's what happened next. Look at verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, see what I mean? That's it. That's the description of his baptism. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son 
with whom I am well pleased. Now, before I make the observation and give the application for our fathers in the room, I need to point out that this is one of the great Trinitarian passages of all the Bible, where we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit called out, working together for a common purpose. And then Matthew continues. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After his baptism, it's on. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan throws everything he's got at him. Tempts him in every possible way. Now notice, it doesn't say the demons did this. This was Satan himself. This uh, was high stakes. There were no underlings at work here. Satan himself met Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus took him on. Today, I invite you to focus on the content of what the Father said. We've been talking about the context of it. I want you to focus on the content. Simple sentence. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, with whom I'm I am well pleased. Alongside the genealogical evidence and the fulfillment of prophecies, Matthew uses this voice from heaven as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. This is God speaking the audible voice of God. We often speaking of, speak of hearing the voice of God. We don't mean by that we have heard an audible, literal voice. We usually mean by that the Spirit of God has testified in our spirit and we're certain that it is God that is speaking. That was not the case here. They heard the voice of God. The voice of God that spoke and the world came into being. Scientists talk about the Big Bang. Well, his booming voice spoke and bang, here was the world. That's the voice of God. And that voice said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And then he allowed him, in the person of the Spirit, he escorted him into the wilderness to be tempted. And by doing that, he is essentially saying, you've got this. You can handle this. The moment of truth has come, and he who is the way, the truth, and the life can handle this. And there he sent him off in to the wilderness. By his presence, by his presence at his baptism and his audible voice, and by the sending of the Spirit to go with him, 
He's not just saying, you've got this, you can do this. But he's saying to them, you're not going to have to do this by yourself. I'm here. You can count on me. And the words that he spoke carry the meaning, I believe in you. Fathers, here's my observation. This is our job description. We are in word and deed to let our children know they've got this. They can do this. We're to let them know and I'm still here. You've got this, but I've got your back. And then, I believe in you. Not just that you can do this, but I believe in you. Personally, I believe in you. Might I suggest, fathers, that our primary task in life is to send our sons and daughters out into the uncertainty of life knowing that the task they have in front of them is possible, that they're not alone, and that we believe in them. About a month ago, I had flown back to see my parents to help my older brother move them into a new assisted living uh, facility. And uh, somewhere, I forget which facility it was, the old one or the new one, my mama introduced me to one of the caregivers. And she said, this is my baby, Jimmy. <laughs> now, I'm not the youngest. My uh, little sister was the youngest, but she went to be with the Lord about 30 years ago. And so I'm the baby that's still alive, I suppose. My mama introduces me. Here I am, a grown-up man <laughs> with grandchildren. And I'm her baby. Now, moms get this. Moms get this. Because it doesn't matter how old you are, you're still your mama's baby. Am I right, ladies? And I didn't argue with mama. I just said, pleased to meet you. Fathers are different. When we hold our small children in our arms in the delivery room, the weight of responsibility that one day this baby is going to be facing life out in the cool, cold, cruel world hits us like a ton of bricks. And from the time they're small, from when they're just little toddlers, we're thinking about that day, one day this child is going to be leaving home. And it's my job to get him, to get her ready for that. Now, I don't know if it's true with every man and every woman. The men I know and the women I know, this is a truism. We just tend to look at our babies differently. Men, we look at them 
And we see who they're going to become. And we know that it's our job to prepare them for that. And so, when something needs fixing, we don't fix it by ourselves. We fix it with our son and our daughter because one day they may be on their own and we'll need to know how to fix that thing. When we're cooking dinner, yes, real men cook dinner for their wives. When we're cooking dinner, we show our sons and daughters how to prepare the meal because one day they're going to be out on their own and they're going to need to be cooking for someone else. We teach them to work hard. Not because we're killjoys and don't want them to enjoy their Saturday. It's because we know that if they don't have a work ethic, they're not going to make it in this world. We say no to them in the toy store. Not because we can't afford the toy and not because we don't want to give it to them, but because we're trying to teach them how to save their money so that they can make the purchases that we need, that they're going to need in life. And so sometimes we say no because that's my little man, that's my little woman. We're helping them to grow and learn to make wise decisions. And speaking of that, we teach them conflict resolution skills because they're going to need to know how to get along with people in life. We teach them right for wrong. Because one day they're going to be asked to do something unethical. And we want them to know that I'd rather be right than be rich. So we teach them right from wrong. We teach them to fear the Lord so that they will not be afraid of any man. So they can live their life fearless. Because of their fear and their respect for the Lord. You see, our orientation from the time we bring our children home is that time is short. And one day soon, in being the father of two grown sons, I can tell you it's in a blink of an eye. Soon, they're going to be leaving home. And they're going to be facing life. And so as the father did with his son, you've got this, you can do this. You're not going to be doing this by yourself. I believe in you. We teach our children while we're providing them, preparing them to be men and women who will be good citizens and men and women of faith who will make right decisions. You can do this. I'm with you. I believe in you. Larry Crabb said that a father speaks three messages to his son. Notice how similar they are to what the father did. He says, the first one is it can be done. The second one is, you're not alone. And the third one is, I believe in you. It's from the book, Men of Courage. It can be done. You're not alone. I believe in you. Notice how closely these things align with what the Father did in one sentence. 
as he spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. By allowing him to go into the wilderness, he was saying, you've got this, you can do it. His presence was saying, you're not in this by yourself. His words carry the meaning. I believe in you. I'm speaking to you men of all ages, not just to men with little children in their home. This is our job description. Now I know it looks different when our children are young and they're in the home than it does when we're fathering and parenting, in my case, men in their mid-30s. It looks different now than it did then, but the message is the same. And you can't put it on a calendar, but the time is going to come when your grown children are going to need you. And if you're a dad, you stand up. You hop on the plane. You go to where they are. You look them in the eye and you say, I'm proud of you, son. We're going to get past this. We're going to do this together. You're not alone. You've got this. I say to my boys, we're Wilsons. We face hardships head on. And we come out the other side victorious. We've got this. I believe in you. I'm here. You're not alone. I believe in you. Now I'm aware that never one, not everyone in the room or watching online has a father who did this well. And to be honest with you, I don't think I've always done it well. Sometimes I pray that my children's memory isn't as good as mine. Do you hear me, Dad? Anybody else with me or am I standing alone? Perhaps your father was hypercritical was pointing out your flaws, maybe even abusive, made you feel worthless. Some of you didn't have a positive father, some of you didn't have a father at all. Okay, fair enough. Here's where this message rings true for you. I'm calling on you to be the kind of father you wish you had. I'm saying the pain stops today. We don't pass it on. Some of you are fathers to a biological child, an adoptive child, or to someone that just looks at you and sees you as a father figure. 
See, with adoption, you get to choose the child. I think there's a special place in heaven for men and women that step in for children that are vulnerable and need somebody and say, sign me up. Maybe you don't have biological or adopted children. As I said, when you adopt them, you choose them. Some people have latched onto you and chosen you and haven't even told you. But they look up at you as a father figure. Paul speaks of being a spiritual father. And in this room, there are many spiritual fathers and not just to their biological or adopted children. I'm saying that all of us have this job description. This is who we are. This is what we do. We look at the people who look up to us and we say, this can be done. You've got it. You're not alone. And look at me, son. I believe in you. You can do this. We do this for our own children. And we do these for people who just look up to us and we don't even know why. But they do. In short, I'm saying we need to be the kind of father that empowers people. And let people know that they're not alone. That they have this. And that you believe in them. I'd like to close by telling you a story that my youngest son actually reminded me of. A story I'd told in a sermon when he was a teenager. And he brought it up to me the other day. Made me reflect upon my professor, Dr. Dan Bowling, who told this story. He was a man that had a lifelong impact on me. And one of the reasons is the story that I'm about to tell you. So the rite of passage had come where his father was going to teach him to mow the lawn. And he took him out with the lawnmower and told him how to service it, how to get ready, how to start it. But before he turned little Danny loose to mow the lawn, he told him about the importance of overlapping the wheels. You don't go exactly where the last row was with your wheel. You move over a little bit because the, so that the blade can get it on. You don't have little mohawk strips, you know, <laughs> left behind. And Danny says, okay, Daddy, I'll, I'll do it. And he got out there and he mowed the lawn. Came back in and announced to his father that the lawn was complete and his dad came out to inspect his work. This we know, every son knows, as the moment of truth. <laughs> His dad comes out and looks at it, and it's livid. Little Danny had left some mohawk strips. He hadn't followed instructions. His father begins to berate him, and Danny says, Let me go get the lawnmower, I'll do it again. His dad refused. He said no. He went and got the lawnmower, started it up himself, finished the job. 
and never let Dan mow the lawn again. Even as an old man, I remember my professor telling us, even as an old man when his father was unable to mow the lawn when he came to visit him, he offered to mow the lawn and his dad says, no, Dan, you never knew how to mow the lawn. I'll get somebody. Well, when Dan's daughter was of age, I feel a little bit uncomfortable calling him Dan. When Dr. Bowling's daughter had come of age and the time for the rite of passage came again. I'm going to come get a Kleenex. Don't let the microphone go crazy. Lesson about that. When his daughter came of age, it was time for him to teach her how to mow the lawn. And he went through the same things that his father had gone through about how to prepare. And he mentioned the Mohawk strips. Believe me, he remembered the Mohawk strips. And reminded his daughter to overlap the wheels so that he, she gets all of the lawn when she mows it. And uh, he went inside and she mowed the lawn, came in to announce to her daddy that the job was done. And he said, okay, sweetheart, let's go out and look. What do we refer to this moment as? The moment of truth. And sure enough, there are little mohawk strips. Dan flashed back. He said to him, I told you. She said, well, Daddy, I'll go get the lawnmower. I'll, I'll fix it. He said, no. He said, it'll be there next week, sweetheart. Let's go in the house and get some lemonade. I'm telling you, it ends today. It ends today. The fact we didn't have a perfect dad doesn't let us off the hook to be less than we can be. It ends today. Mercy wins. You want to talk about masculinity? There's nothing in the world more masculine than gentleness and kindness and grace and mercy. Those are the traits of masculinity. When you're a real man, you don't show how big you are by how many small people you can push around. When you're a real man, you're lifting those up around you. Whether they're kin or not. And you're saying to them, this can be done. You've got this. I'm here with you, and I believe in you. We expect people to make mistakes. If children didn't make mistakes, we wouldn't need fathers. 
And I don't know what you pictured in your mind when you said that. You were probably thinking little kids. I wasn't. Our children will make mistakes. That's something that they inherited, by the way. You can trace it all the way back to Adam. They're going to make mistakes. What's your message going to be? I told you. Don't you ever listen? guess the question I have for you is what are you going to do with your opportunities to be a merchant of hope aka a father but I also want to ask you not just what are you going to do with your opportunity I want to ask you what are you going to do with your pain I'm not saying you can solve it today. But you can start down the path of resolution today. Let's be men and women of grace. Let's forgive our parents for their mistakes. And let's be inspired to do a better job this generation. And then ask your kids. Now you do a better job than mom and I did. It can be done. You're not in it alone. Your pastors are with you. We believe in you. You can do this. See, I don't think it's just a job description for fathers. Brother Charlie, it's a job description for us pastors too, isn't it?